Welcome to Gun Freedom Radio, where we engage, we educate, and we inform. We are sponsored by azfirearms.com, the biggest little gun shop in Arizona. And I am one of your hosts, Cheryl Todd. And I'm Dan Todd. We have a great show today. We have Chuck Holton. Chuck is the host of Frontlines, an NRA TV series. He's an American war correspondent for the Christian Broadcasting Network, a published author, and a motivational speaker. Welcome, Chuck. Hello. How are you? We are doing great. How are you? Well, I'm, I'm here and I'm awake. So. <laughs> well, uh, just before we came on, you were sharing that you had just come from uh, uh, a high school reunion, and you can yeah. see the number if you like, but uh, you know, those, those can be lively. So it's I, fifth year. It's just fifth it's, year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you're, uh, yeah. being awake is a good let's, thing? Let's put it that most of the people there were grandparents already, so uh, <laughs> it's amazing. Well, some of the best people in the world are grandparents, kind of like me and this guy sitting mm-hmm. next to me. So. I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> oh, you're going to be an awesome grandpa. You're an awesome dad. So, <laughs> Well, we are excited to talk to you about several things that you've been uh, doing. And, you know, one of the more dangerous things other than your high school reunion <laughs> that you've been to was a little trip that you took to the Philippines recently. Talk to us about that what what happened when you were there filming well you know you you might or might not be aware that uh isis is uh, has attempted to form a a sort of a, a caliphate in uh that part of the world and they chose uh the philippines to do that because there was already a a muslim insurgency going on since the 1970s in the southern part of mindanao uh, the southern island in the Philippines. So they took uh, some terrorist organizations, uh, jihadi groups that like Abu Sayyaf, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, uh, Jamaa Islamiyah, and s- sort of combined them into a, an ISIS affiliate in the Philippines. And they took over a, a town of about 300,000 people called Marawi. Uh, this is now going on about two months ago. And uh, they basically started doing the same old head chopping and, you know, that sort of thing that, that uh, ISIS does wherever it goes. Uh, they, they created a huge refugee crisis over there, uh, internally displaced people uh, as people fled the violence. And uh, the Philippine army went in uh, with some advise and assist uh, role uh, by the United States Special Forces and uh, started trying to root them out. Uh, it, it, there's some very big similarities between the fight uh, in Marawi and the fight in Mosul against ISIS. And so that's what we went to investigate. We went to report on, uh, you know, just how, how that fight is going and what are the differences and the similarities between uh, the fight against ISIS in Mosul and the fight against ISIS in Southeast Asia. Well, one of the differences uh, in those two fights is apparently in the Philippines, you took some fire. Uh, well, we got shot at in Mosul, too. <laughs> oh, well, we don't <laughs> so, have video of that. <laughs> no, we don't have, have it on video. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, you know, we were trying to get embedded with the uh, Philippine Army, and uh, that takes a little bit of coordination, so we were waiting for that. We were at their headquarters, which had, uh, was kind of the town center in Marawi, uh, but it had been retaken by the Philippine Army. So it was uh, near enough to the fighting that we could – we were kind of on a hilltop, 
and we could look down into the city and we could watch the fighting happening. Uh, I was able to fly my drone right into the middle of the city and, and get some unbelievable combat footage from the sky, uh, which I'll show you a little bit of here in a minute. And uh, just we're able to kind of have a front row seat to the fighting, but we were about two kilometers away from the fighting. So I, I thought we were pretty safe standing on that rooftop. Uh, but as I was uh, filming my stand-up, uh, there was a sniper that decided to kind of took an interest in us and started taking pot shots at us. Fortunately, the uh, ISIS snipers don't go to the range as much as U U.S. snipers do. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Yeah. Uh, and, and he missed us several times. At first, I thought it was a when, when you hear the first round go by the camera. I thought, whoa, that was a stray round. That's I mean, who would be shooting all the way over here? I thought, yeah, it's a stray round. But uh, then when three more rounds came in, right as we turned the camera off, mm. my, my audio recorder was still going. And so you can hear the other rounds come, come by us. And that's when we realized that somebody's actually shooting at us. And we all hit the deck uh, and got off that rooftop pretty quick. Uh, you know, part of doing this job, uh, going to places like this, is you, you got to know when to duck and you got to know when to run away and uh, uh, not be too proud. So uh, that's, that's what happened. Well, we're so thankful that you're okay. And um, if I can push all the right buttons now, I'm going to show that video. Um, and, you know, the footage is gorgeous. I mean, the, the countryside, the town is gorgeous. But then as your drone is flying over, um, you do see the devastation of, of war. But it's a really interesting uh, video. So give me just a second. And... Uh, let me pull that video up, which is always the uh, the trick here. Make sure I've done it right. Everybody can see that. This rooftop I'm standing on is only about two kilometers from the forward line of troops. The front line's right there in Old Town Marawi behind me. We're hearing bullets go, go by here right now as I speak, and there's a massive volume of fire and explosions happening behind me. That says that the Philippine army is trying to end this thing sooner rather than later. There's still a couple hundred ISIS troops that are holding out to the end down there, and it's evident from what we're hearing they are not going down without a fight. That was definitely a round. Oh, okay. Uh, this is no joke. We're two kilometers from the front lines, and just as I finished that stand-up, we had about three rounds come in, I mean, close enough that they hit the rooftop right beside me over there, and uh, we are, we're getting down off this roof right now. It is apparent that perhaps somebody is actually... Uh, targeting us on this rooftop. I thought we were far enough away from the combat to keep that from happening, but uh, maybe not. I gotta get my get my bag here. We're getting down off this rooftop right now. All right. Here, take my, take my bag.
Wow. Like all I can say is, wow. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things in that video. First of all, you know, the countryside is just beautiful, but then you see the devastation that war causes. You say it's a fairly small town and then like the largest building there, the largest, most beautiful building strikes me. I think that's the mosque. Yeah. And that's where the uh, snipers were, you know, they were up in those minarets uh, at, at times. Uh, the, once we got embedded with the Philippine Army, we went down to a counter sniper position that they had put in and uh, watched as those guys tried to target and identify the, the, the uh, ISIS snipers uh, and shoot back at them. But the problem is those guys take one shot and then they move. They go to somewhere else. They take one shot and then they move. And so it's, it's almost impossible to, to find them. And that is really how, you know, a handful, uh, a couple of hundred uh, ISIS fighters were able to hold off the entire Philippine army uh, for, for over a month. And, uh, you know, they're, they're rooting them out pocket by pocket, but they're literally having to go room by room, house by house, like Stalingrad. And it's, there's been a, a tremendous cost to the Philippine military in lives doing that. They've had over 70 men killed. Mm -hmm. uh, and we see this, um, you know, when you have people that are zealots that are, you know, not only willing to die, but wanting to die uh, for their cause and willing to, to just fight to the end and take as many people with them and, and no holds barred, no rules, uh, use civilian, uh, civilians as human shields, uh, use them as slave laborers. Uh, you know, when you start to, when you see people like that, take over an area like Marawi, where those are concrete buildings, they're, they're sort of naturally fortified against gunfire already. Uh, it's just very, very hard to get rid of them. And uh, that's one of the reasons that the Iraqi have lost over 10,000 men in the fight for Mosul, um, because it's the same deal over there. And these guys have had, the only difference is that the, uh, the ISIS fighters in Mosul have had almost three years to fortify their positions, to dig tunnels, to put in uh, in place IEDs and that sort of thing, they had they didn't have that much time in uh, Marawi, uh, but they they were very well armed and um, they had been planning this uh, takeover for uh, quite some time. They actually ended up, I think, kicking it off earlier than planned because of a, a high value target raid that the Philippine Army made into Marawi that sort of you know got them going and kicked this thing off earlier than they they would have so they weren't quite as well prepared as they might have been but still it's been a, a very costly thing in in civilian lives and in uh, lives of the uh philippine army trying to take them take take back marawi uh marawi is a is a muslim uh city i mean it's it's a muslim enclave uh, when you when you go into the city there's a big gate across the road that says welcome to the islamic city of marawi and uh that's interesting because it's it shows the plurality in uh, of, of religions in the philippines it shows the tolerance of the philippine people 90 plus percent of which are uh are catholic and uh yet they've they've allowed the muslims to kind of have their own little enclave down there but it's come back to bite them and you know one of our questions was why 
did they decide to to have an to start an Islamic caliphate in a primarily Christian country when they could have gone right across the straits there to Indonesia, which is a 98% Muslim country, and they could have started it over there. And the answer for that, what we found is that they needed to be the underdogs so that they could put out the call to Muslims around the world and say, support your Muslim brethren uh, and, and come and help us fight these Christian infidels uh, who are uh, oppressing us, you know, in, in this part of the world. And that's really what happened. Wow. wow. Well, and even when you were talking about the fight having to go house to house, and I was looking at the size of the mosque, and I'm thinking, you know, there's, I would think, there's clearly more people that attend that mosque and attribute themselves to the, the Muslim religion in that area that aren't the zealots, right? Of course. And so yes. even as you're going house by house, just trying to figure out who's a friendly and who's waiting well, to turn your back. I, everybody in, in Marawi at that point was either a bad guy or a hostage. And, wow. um, and one of the problems they were having is that the, the ISIS fighters were, were making the hostages dress like an ISIS fighter, maybe even carry a, a, a vest or a weapon or something like that, just to make it look like their numbers were larger than they actually were. But so then the, the Philippines were, you know, Philippine soldiers were shooting these people and then come to find out it's a 10 year old boy or something like that. It's just really, really sad. Uh, while we were there, uh, there were several, uh, three people who, who escaped under fire uh, out of Marawi into the uh, zone that was held by the Philippine army. And um, they had, they were Catholics. Uh, who had lived in Marawi before, and they had been taken hostage right at the beginning of the siege, and they had been f forced to perform labor, uh, you know, dig tunnels and things like that, uh, forced to, uh, you know, help out as far as that goes. And they finally just made a run for it. The, the, the standoff was right at the river that, I don't know if you saw it in the, in the aerial video there, but there's a river, and the Philippine army is now on one side, ISIS is on the other side. There's only three bridges going across. Nobody really wants to be the guy who tries to take those bridges because ISIS has just got it covered from every way with yeah. snipers. But these civilians were desperate enough to make a run for it across the bridge, and by some miracle, they survived. Oh. Uh, and and uh, they were very distraught when, when we found them just moments after that. Uh, and we were able to interview them and talk to them about you know, what had happened. The first thing that the woman uh, asked for was a, a charger to charge her phone so that she could call her relatives who were outside of Marawi and let them know that she was okay. Cause, uh, they hadn't been able to communicate in over a month. And, uh, you know, wow. so this fight is winding down in the Philippines. They've, they're, they're taking, it's taking them about 40 buildings a day is what they're able to clear. And so you look at how packed, densely packed that downtown area of Marawi is. It's, it's taken them a while to get through that. Um, and, and again, they're trying to be very cautious because uh, they're losing people. Uh, and so once they get, they, they drive those people out, the, what you see is, you know, like I say, these are Muslims that lived in Marawi, but they, they have alienated a lot of those people because they've, they found you know, we talked to some of the Muslims that were driven out of Marawi and they're like, hey, if they want to fight the Philippine army, they can go out in the jungle and do that. Why did they have to do that right in the middle of our city and destroy my house in the process? So they're not making any friends. And we see that all over the world, that terrorists very often don't, uh, you know, if, if they lose the, the, the support of the local populace, then they lose, period. They're going to lose everything.
Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like it would be really easy to lose the support of the populace. I mean, there's no uh, uplifting message that I've seen at all. I, I can't understand why people are, you know, drawn to this in any way, shape, or form. But you know, I grew up in America. I grew up Christian, so I think I just don't have the the point of view to even get it. But um, well, you know, here, here's something interesting that we're even seeing. You know, it's it's uh, it's this. Um, look, Islam is a political system of conquest that masquerades as a religion, and uh, that's that's really when you. S- see it the way I've seen it around the world. Mm-hmm. That's the conclusion that I've come to, that, mm-hmm. that it is a system of conquest. And, and the Muslim scripture, you know, commands them to do these things. And uh, matter of fact, I have a photograph that I took in Marawi uh, in a bombed out building that we, we were in at one point. And it had an inscription in Arabic and then it had an English translation underneath it. And it was from the Hadith. And it said, um, Allah will not change a man's situation until the man changes it himself. Now, if you think about that, it's, it's kind of like the, the saying that we kind of have heard in, in America sometimes of God helps those who help themselves, but, but not really. If you really think about what that says, number one, it kind of makes Allah useless. I mean, wh- who needs a God who won't help you until you've already changed the situation yourself, right? But but it also means that it, it what it does is it puts the onus of uh, of everything onto the person, meaning don't trust God to to save you, don't trust God to accomplish your political will or your goals or or take over the world, like you know like a Christian worldview would say, like we're going to do our best, but we're going to trust God for the result. Mm-hmm. It's it's the mirror image of that. It's you can't trust God for the result. So you've got to do it. If you want to get yourself to heaven, you can't trust God to, to redeem you and take you to heaven. You've got to go earn it. And when those people, when they, when they really come to the belief that the only possible way that I have a chance of achieving heaven, for sure, is to die in the fight against the infidel, mm-hmm. then, then they have to go out and, and perform this conquest. Mm-hmm. And you know that's a, a real philosophical conversation. But I think that it really helps explain a lot when you see like, why would these people go and just blow themselves up, right. you know, just one after the other. Right. Well, and I've talked to guys who were former Muslims that explained it to me that way that said, you know, that our belief is in, in Islam that when you die and you, you go before Allah, that he weighs your good deeds against your bad deeds and whichever one wins out, that's the direction you go. Mm-hmm. Well, if you think about that from our point of view, if I had to, if I had to get to heaven on the strength of my own, uh, my, my own uh, acts or do, you know, uh, you know, good, good works, I, I wouldn't be positive that I'd be getting there. You know what I mean? And so, but in, in their religion, the only way that you can be positive is to die in the fight against the infidel. And so, uh, you know, if they, they believe that with all their heart, then, you know, it's all about, dying the right way for them when in our case as christians the dying's already been done for us mm-hmm. and it's our gratitude for that death of christ on the cross that makes us want to love other people so it's you know it, um it is it could not be a more stark difference that's for sure so true well one of the i'm sorry did you have something no i just wondered chuck who's helping the philippines right now 
Nobody. Uh, I mean, the United States has about 200 special operations troops in the country that, you know, we've, we've had their doing training and stuff with them all along, but we are, other than perhaps providing a little bit of uh, signals intelligence support or, uh, you know, that kind of uh, maybe some, some uh, uh, drone footage or drone capability, that sort of thing. We're not engaged in that fight at all. Uh, that's their fight. They don't need our help. They don't want our help other than maybe, like I said, some of that, that intelligence support. And uh, so that's it. Um, I did not see any uh, evidence whatsoever of U.S. engagement or involvement in that fight. Uh, now, you know, contrasting that with Mosul, there's quite a bit of engagement and involvement uh, by the United States, especially after Trump got elected uh, over in that fight. And that's part of the reason that it, they have been wrapping up the fight in Mosul faster than they originally expected. I mean, originally they thought they'd take over Mosul in two months, and then they realized this is going to be a lot longer than we thought. And then the the generals were saying it was probably going to be mid-2018 before they took Mosul. But once Trump got elected and sort of took the gloves off of our troops and, and let our generals start making the decisions rather than having the decisions made at the White House, then things stepped up and started going quite a bit faster. And um, they they are now, you know, mopping up in Mosul uh, as we speak. So. So when you were shot at in both places, um, you know, the guy that was in the Philippines, do you think it was purposeful? Do you think he was just taking pot shots? Because if he could see you, he could clearly see that you're a news crew. You're not, you know, a direct threat to him. But it seems like he would um, definitely not want to let your drone fly around. I'm surprised your drone didn't get Oh, that, that drone is so small that uh, he, can't see it. he would have he would have had a hard time hitting it. If he, if I get that drone two hundred feet in the air, you can't see it. It looks like a speck up there. True. Um, and uh, and I I kept it up pretty high. I, I was a little worried a couple times, but um, you know they they didn't shoot. There's there's actually quite a few drones flying around there. Um, other news crews and and even the military had some down there. And uh, drones are changing the way that that warfare is done. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we saw in Mosul that we did not see in Marawi is the enemy using drones uh, against the, the friendly forces. So in Mosul, they're taking swarms of commercially available drones, almost just like the one that I have, and modifying them to carry a single grenade oh. that they can then fly over, over friendly forces and get them, you know, situated right above concentrations of, of uh, Iraqi troops and release them and drop these grenades. And they've, they've had at least 15 Iraqi troops killed by drones that way in yeah. Mosul. Uh, they're not doing that in Marawi, uh, but that is changing the, the way that war is, is done. As a matter of fact, I read this morning that a, a single small drone uh, flown by Russian forces uh, destroyed an ammo dump in Ukraine yesterday with a billion dollars worth of ammunition oh, with, with a wow. single thermite grenade just dropped from the sky onto that, onto that thing and, uh, has, wow. and destroyed a billion dot with a B that's unbelievable. And so we're going to see that continue. I, I wrote an article about it for America's first freedom called game of drones. And, uh, you're, you're going to see more and more of that. Uh, it's, it's really a fascinating aspect to this fight. Would be a good way to identify snipers and things by having a drone. Sure, it's a whole lot cheaper. I mean, one of the things I was saying in my article is that 
you know, you could save a lot of lives. If I mean, these drones are four or $500. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and the drone I have has a range of over four miles mm-hmm. from the controller. So, you know, these guys could could fly. I, I mean, $400 for a military setting, that's disposable. Mm-hmm. That's like toilet paper. They probably pay more for toilet paper. Yeah, and, no doubt. And, uh, you know, so they could fly those things into, into Mosul, identify enemy uh, positions and things like that, and direct troops and keep them from, from uh, you know, having to send men in there to get killed. You're going to see more and more of that as, as time goes on. For sure. Well, we're going to need to start wrapping up a little bit here. But uh, before we do, one of the assignments you had recently was uh, going into the women's anti-gun march. That might be too dangerous. <laughs> I think I'd rather be in Mosul for sure. I was, was going to say, which was the, the more dangerous of the two? No, no, no. Not that it was more dangerous, just that it's uh, more uh, frustrating. And, uh, you know, in, in Mosul, things make sense more. Um, you know, when, you're, when I'm in Washington, D.C., in a free country, and I'm listening to uh, uh, the woman who, leads, who was leading this march, Linda Sarsour, uh, you know, who advocates for Sharia law, who berates women uh, who have been had their genitals mutilated, uh, who, who, you know, and, and then this, this weird kind of perverse connection that this jihadi, you know, this woman who's calling for jihad against the Trump administration has with the Black Lives Matter movement and with the gay rights movement and with the climate, uh, you know, change movement. And I mean, what we saw at this women's march was really, it, it was just a convenient platform for every uh, gripe that every leftist cause has, uh, funded by another Soros cut out, you know, a, a Soros uh, organization. And, um, you know, they raised something like $100,000 for this march. And, uh, you know, gathered outside the NRA headquarters and chanted the slogans and just the weird mishmash of signs of, like I say, just all these different causes coming together. And, and it was purported to be a, a protest about this video that the NRA came out with by Dana Lash that was, this is the, the thing that is, just makes it seem like we're in bizarro world here where everything's upside down. The video that Dana Lash came out with was condemning the violent protests that we are seeing from the left. And that's everywhere from the J20 protests on on Inauguration Day to Ferguson, to Milwaukee, to Charlotte, to Baltimore, to Oakland. I mean, you could just go on and on and on, these Antifa protests and everything. She came out with a video denouncing that violence of lies, as she put it, and saying that the way to the, the way to counter these things is with the clenched fist of truth. That is, when we tell the truth about what is really going on in this world, when we take the spin off that CNN and MSNBC and you know those guys try to put on the news, when we take that leftist spin off of it and let people see the truth, those people, just like in Marawi, where the, the ISIS guys are losing the support of the people, the Antifa, these leftist movements are going to lose the popular support that the media tries to give them because we're showing the, the truth. Somehow they twisted that to mean that we were calling for violence against black people or calling for violence against gays. It's, it's exactly the opposite of what the video was, was actually doing. 
but that doesn't stop them. And so what I found talking to the people in the March was that number one, most of them had not actually watched the video themselves. (laughs) They were, they listened to what the leaders of the March said that this was a a video calling for violence and they got all up in arms about it. And when I explained to them what the video actually said, they were like, Oh, Oh. you know, (laughs) well, that's completely different. (laughs) Right. And, um, and the other thing is, is just that, you know, there was a tremendous amount of um, hypocrisy on display. Here they are protesting against the NRA, which is a, a, a human rights organization that advocates for people, for equality in people's ability to defend themselves. That advocates for my ability as a, a former army ranger, you know, trained killer to be the same as your ability, Cheryl, as a, a you know, a, a pretty woman to be able to protect yourself as well. I'm just and a yet, mom. I'm just a grandma and yeah, I have the same rights as you. And why to, would I protest that? You look like a grandma, but anyway, so here's this, this human rights organization that's advocating for equality for people, people's right to defend themselves. And, and they're protesting against the NRA. And yet the leaders of the protest I was I was there watching, and I'm I'm watching Linda Sarsour and, and Tamika Mallory and, and these women that were leading the protest, and they're surrounded by bodyguards, hired security, and as we look, I notice that these bodyguards are carrying concealed weapons, and here so they don't mind themselves being protected by armed security, but they want to take your right uh, away to to protect yourself, and it, the hypocrisy of that is just mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling, and. Uh... You know, it's just so stark to me as I watch your journey, as you travel to all these different war-torn places in the world, the populations that would give anything if they had the rights to defend themselves and how much less of this uh, insurgency that could even happen if the populace was able to defend itself as we are. Yeah. Again, the other, the other point of that hypocrisy that I saw was these black lives matter people standing up in the protest and just denouncing the police and just trashing the police all the while surrounded by police protecting (laughs) their right to do so. And I was standing there, one of these cops and there were like 30, 30 cops around protecting them, keeping them from getting run over, you know, that sort of thing. And I asked one of these cops, I mean, how does this make you feel listening to what they're saying about you while you're protecting them? And he said, Hey, overtime is overtime, man. I don't, whatever. It's a free country. And you know, that's the same, the same thing that I have heard from U S troops, you know, who, who this same group of people that just trashes the the U S military so often. And, you know, guys like me that say, I fought for your right to say that. And when I go to these countries like Mosul and like Marawi and, and, and go see these countries where they, people don't have those rights, you know, if, if Linda Sarsour really cared about, uh, you know, being a feminist, why isn't she in Saudi Arabia uh, protesting against that regime? Because you know why? Because they would kill her. They would, they would, they would probably uh, gang rape her to death or something over there. And, and uh, you know, she does that here because she is protected by people like me. And, and the, she doesn't even understand the irony of that. And this is the thing, like, they have no sense of irony. Tamika Mallory, if she, look, if she really cared about black lives, she should be in Chicago at City Hall 
protesting against the gun restrictions there that keep good people from being able to protect themselves. You know, until Black Lives Matter starts standing up for and denouncing the violent, the black on black violence, which makes up the vast majority of the reasons that black people get killed, until Black Lives Matter starts protesting outside Planned Parenthood abortion clinics where 19 million black people have been murdered over the last 20 years, then they, they're not going to have any credibility as far as I'm concerned. Well, and uh, so, you know. Well, sir, we do have to wrap up, but we've got to have you back on again soon. We always love uh, chatting with you and getting your perspective on things because you are definitely outside of the Beltway bubble. You're outside <laughs> of just even the American bubble. Uh, and it's important for us to realize that there is a great grand world going on out there uh, besides, you know, the three topics that we get to hear on our national news networks every night. And, right. uh, so how can people follow you in all the different ways that you, uh, you know, film and you write uh, so that we can stay in touch with your perspective? Well, I do a daily commentary about 10 minutes every morning at uh, 11 a.m. Eastern uh, on NRA TV on the Grant Stinchfield Show. And I do that from wherever I am in the world. And they send me to a lot of different places. I got, got 120,000 miles so far this year on uh, United alone. So uh, we're headed next to the Czech Republic next week uh, to report on some of their uh, gun, the changes they're making in their gun laws to allow their people to protect themselves. And uh, so that and Facebook are probably the two best ways to follow what I'm doing. Very good. So it's Chuck Holton, pretty easy to spell, all phonetically correct, all that kind of stuff, easy to find. H-O-L-T-O-N, yep. Exactly. Thank you so much for um, coming on with us and talking with us. And, uh, you know, I'm just so glad you're safe. That video, uh, I don't know how your wife and your kids can watch that because... It's it's scary for we don't, for us. We don't sweat the close ones. Yeah. Well, Chuck, thank you very much for what you do. I mean, it's Good it's great. Thank you. All right, yeah, sir. You we will talk soon. Okay. Take care. All right. You too. Bye bye.